You want to start or you want me to start? <laughs> Martin, please do the honors. Sure. sure. Um, so I'm Martin and this is Ralph. And we are the Loom Plotters. And today we have a very nice little talk, a little debate, a discussion, being that we are in the midst of this Watches and Wonders week. Um, we want to talk watch fairs. Are they still needed? Who needs watch fairs? Why do we care? And why are they even around anymore with the internet and all of the things that we have in front of us? Yeah. So we're going to spend half an hour here, mm -hmm. as usual, discussing why we care. Why we care. And do you need a watch fair? Do, do, should you actually attend one if you are a watch collector? Is there any, any benefit? Why would you do that? In the, in, the, in the age of the internet where you see the releases instantly being broadcast um, with so many press coverage that we have now, because we have all of these different um, websites and platforms covering watches, which wasn't necessarily the case uh, even. No, we, we ago, go back. Right? Let's, let's talk But watch we, fairs. Why are watch fairs even there? So okay. maybe, maybe you, Martin, you know a bit more about the history of it. Why do you take us back to the oldest watch fair? That so the oldest that watch is. fair, as far as I, I, I remember, is is of course Basel World. Um, started in what I think it was 1917. Is that correct? Yes, I think, I think, I think so. so. 1917, so. um, and it's been around for. Uh, was it was around that we should say exactly <laughs> um, for 102 years before it was defunct wow um, which is which is quite some time hmm. but we, we put ourselves in the mindset of a jeweler or a, a watch reseller retailer whatever you want to call it a watch boutique um, in 1917 um, the whole purpose of these watch fairs was that the watch industry the big brands um would reveal their curiosities, their new watches for that year. Mm -hmm. And they would show these boutiques, these resellers, whoever they were, um, you know, they're, they're your boucherers and your, um, you know, Siddiqui's of the world, so to speak, nowadays. Um, you would show them, this is our collection this year. And then these um, retailers would go and they would buy and choose specifically, okay, well, I would like 100 of these. I would like 500 of these. I would like 200 of these. And that is what they would take mm -hmm. uh, or that is what they would receive from the manufacturer. So that's the first thing. You used to have this kind of working relationship with a watch brand. You would be able to choose as a retailer what you wanted to take with you. Um, and Nowadays, this does not exist. If you are a Rolex authorized dealer, you're lucky if you get anything at all, right? Well, I think you still can order anything you like. You're the just question not is get if it. you're getting it. Yeah. Yes. So once <laughs> you, again, you get what you get. Yeah, it's like a surprise. Box. So this this is the first thing. Um, is these these don't exist anymore? There's no. I think let, let's 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 stay there at that time pre-internet just about telephone mm -hmm, right mm -hmm, yeah we had post but that would take, would take a couple of days or weeks correct depends on how far you were going would, right i would, mean imagine you're going by boat yeah switzerland exactly. to the u.s yeah that would take a few weeks right yeah. to get a letter there so maybe then a couple of tens decades later with the flight and air mail 
yeah, yeah, it would, <laughs> it would be faster. But thinking about that at that time, there was not even a fax or anything like that. So you, you, you needed to show watches to somebody and you couldn't just easily send them around. There was no FedEx or anything like that. It was just all government run postal services, not necessarily the fastest, efficient but not necessarily the fastest. So you needed to get your products to somebody who was had the authority to put in orders, yeah. right? As you said, you, the, the retailers would come there and say, okay, I'm putting my orders in for the next year. Yep, and that's so exactly not only what the, they did. Yeah, not only the old ones, but also the new ones, right? You wanted to see the novelties, as you said, and saying, okay, what do you have? And is this something I can sell in my region and my exactly that, local, that, that's something we shop. forget about hmm. is that um even up until you know the early 2000s even even now technically speaking there are differences in consumption behavior by region so let's take omega for instance omega i think it was the, the recent statistics said like 70 percent of omegas were purchased in uh far east asia so China, Japan, uh, you know, the, these countries. Um, whereas Rolex is an even split across the entire world. Right. So therefore, this is going to cause Omega, knowing that this split exists, mm. to generate new products geared towards those specific markets, right? So this was one of the things that we often forget is that, <clears throat> excuse me, these uh, these. Uh, watch manufacturers or even the retailers were buying specific products for their market, yes. right? Which nowadays it slips our uh, mind a lot that that there is differing consumer behaviors between regions. So, mm-hmm. uh, somebody in North America might want a thousand datejusts. Meanwhile, somebody in in the Middle East might want you know a thousand submariners, right? right. Um, so that is a difference in in buying behavior and and of the habits of those um, regions. So so basically, these watch fairs were not end consumer watch fairs because nobody would go to a watch show at that time. Yeah, of you course. would just go to your local jewelry store because first of all, travel air travel wasn't really a thing, and you're not sitting in a train for fifty hours or sixty hours to go to a watch show and, and watch. As just an enthusiast, I don't even know if there was watches. enthusiasts at the time. You know, <laughs> yes, were exactly. there were there wristwatch enthusiasts then? Yeah, maybe, maybe there were some collectors, but I guess. Well, let's was- talk nineteen seventeen. There, there, there wasn't even really wristwatches yet True, i mean the, remember this is this is just starting <laughs> uh, right, so we're right. talking pocket watches oh, first man. and yes, foremost yes, 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 yes. um and this is you know what 1914 was the original tank i believe yeah yeah or was, it was 19- still niche right because wristwatches were for ladies i mean exactly exactly a, a proper gentleman would never be seen and the santos do, uh, the santos the original yeah. cartier santos was the also the first wristwatch for men yeah first sports watch technically so and first pilot's watch yeah, Santos. so this was a little bit before 1917. Mm-hmm. Um, same with the tank came out before 1917, but we're still nowhere in the in the heyday of, of, of wristwatches. Wa- yeah, wrist yeah, yeah. yeah, but from there on, it was like an avalanche. Right? I mean, the, the, after the I think the World Wars, when actually soldiers started to wear trench watches and, and you know needed yeah. to know the time to coordinate attacks and whatever, just warfare stuff. I don't think they were going to Basel World either. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> But they developed but they the taste the watch. for the exactly. watch on their wrist and thought like, okay. And that was World War One, right? So that's when the kind of the field watches and then the first aviation watches were getting started. Yeah. Um, by by World War Two, that's when they were in full force. Yes. Yeah, right. So the, the militaries all had orders for different types of watches. Um, 
the the watches had become a robust and uh, reliable thing by that point. So yeah. by the um, 50s, we had diving the, watches. Exactly. Right? By the 50s, you have your diving watches. Yeah. So yeah, as you can see, the watch industry has grown. Yes. And these fairs grew as well. Yeah, and the demand, of course, has changed depending on what people wanted at the time. Um, so what happened with Basel? Well, it was... So for many, many decades, I think that was it, right? I mean, there's, there's this is... It was an industry event. Event. B2B, business to business. People would go there to just talk business, get orders in, get their sales done, watch manufacturers. And that's also one thing we have to keep in mind. At the time, watch brands would basically never sell a watch directly to a customer. There was no end consumer, you know. Uh, Their customers were jewelry shops, exactly. authorized dealers, whatever you want to call them at the time. Retailers, Retailers, yeah. yeah. And they sold the watches to them, and that's it. And remember, this is the time where we had some weird retailers. We've had some weird retailers over, you know, over time. But you know, Cartier was selling Patek, and and uh, uh, or sorry, not Cartier. Uh, um, Tiffany's was selling Patek, and they were. And this was not uh, 1917. Uh, but you know, this this is how things were done. And this was Abercrombie and Fitch was selling Tag Heuer at the yeah. time. It was not Tag Heuer either, but at that time they would even co-brand or even yes. fully brand watches. Uh, and this is this is ridiculous. When uh, at some point, you know, this happened with. Hoyer, um, Abercrombie and Fitch had their name on the dial and Hoyer did not, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. So a lot of these companies would say, okay, well, take your name off. Mm. We'll put our name on and you just make watches for us. Mm. So that's a whole other demographic of watch sales. Um, we, we have this with, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, what was it? The, the, with JLC, they did this a lot. Yeah. Um, they would manufacture watches and somebody else would put, ultimately put their names. Look at the Reverso, the Patek Philippe Reverso. They didn't even bother changing the name. Mm-hmm. It was just called the Reverso. Yeah. But it was Patek Philippe. And they changed nothing. So the case in... Case, movement, everything. everything all from JLC. Yeah. Patek just put their name on it. Yeah. So, all right. Moving on. Moving so on. So what happened after, after Basel World? What so, was the next So for first, but well, let's just say what happened uh, in, nine, uh, in 19, 2018. Um, there were rumors uh, remember, by this point, the internet was widespread. Everybody was, you know, it's a few years ago, right? So we were seeing a lot of watch releases and people started wondering, why is this necessary? Why do we care? Basel was charging immense amounts, uh, millions of dollars for to the, rent a booth. For the show. And, and it gets, it gets, it gets a very yeah. convoluted and uh, strange, uh, you know, accounting principles. Basically what happened was the fair mm. uh, owns the pavilion. However, they consider the two as two separate entities, uh, financially speaking. So what happened was, um, in 2018, people started complaining, okay, why are we paying so much? What are we getting out of this? Is this even worth it? Mm. Omega says, we're done. We're out. And that was the first big exit of Basel World in 2018. So they said, for 2019, we're not there. So um, I had the good fortune of going to Basel 2019, which was fantastic. It was ultimately the last Basel World. And the reason it was the last Basel World, of course, was 2020, March. Uh, actually, it would have been in April. Um, we had, that's when COVID hit heavily. And uh, so ultimately, what happened was um, a lot of brands said, okay, we, they already, already paid hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars for their booths mm-hmm. uh, to the Basel Fair. And they said, okay, well, we would like a refund because clearly we're not doing anything. Um, this year, it's going to be canceled. Basil said, 
sorry, we can't refund your money. We've already spent it. I mean, everybody looks around. Well, what did you spend it on? Because clearly you haven't <laughs> done anything yet. There was no um, there was no fair. There was nothing going on. Um, and this was where this accounting issue came on. Apparently, you they paid the fair. The fair transferred the money to the pavilion, which was under the same ownership. Mm-hmm. And apparently, the pavilion spent that money mm. uh, on, God knows what they say, renovations and stuff, right? But ultimately, nobody got their refunds. At the end, I think they, they managed to negotiate yeah, some. But, some. Uh, you know, it was not a you didn't get a full refund. It was maybe partial at best. Well, obviously, this left a very, very sour taste in the brand's mouths. Yeah. I think there was also a bit of a resistance from the brands to say, like, why do we have to cramp our year's releases into this couple of days, these five or yeah. seven days of this fair, when we have to share all the attention of the media, of the people, with every other brand? That Correct. attends that that fair. So that's I think one of that's the reasons another Omega issue. said like we are big enough to fly in reporters and the media to launch things on our own. For small brands, I do fully understand why a watch fair is there because you you all of the journalists are there. You don't have to fly them in. So if, you if you're to, if you're you know, you know Doxa for instance, yeah. right? No one is going to fly to Doxa. Doxa is not going to pay for a bunch of reporters to come to visit them. Yeah, they can't so it's it's it, yeah. it's nice, exactly. Exactly. So you have the the attention. You have the media there. You have the infrastructure. Everybody sees you. You see everybody. You can talk to everyone. It's it's a great dynamic. Dynamic. Yeah. You can launch things and get attention, but for the big brands. Hmm. Is it worth it? it? Do they need this? No, probably not. Not for this this kind of... Yeah, then, this of was course, a big issue. Ordering also has done, you know, now with... Uh, with We're not doing else. the B2B anymore, right? Exactly. As we said before. This doesn't really happen. Um, and also we have to keep in mind the fact that d- during COVID, a lot of these watch brands, we had the... Um, the big release was the uh, the first big, I, if I remember correctly, the first big COVID release um, was the Tudor Black Bay 58 Blue. Mm. Yeah, that was 2020, I believe. Yes, and the um, hype of for this watch was And it insane. blew up yes. from one day to the next. No one knew it was coming. They just dropped it mm. online. Well, there were some rumors, right, before. Yeah, like there was lots of days, rumors, always rumors, but, rumors and, um, but yeah, nobody yeah. knew what it would be. And all of a sudden, Black Bay 58 Blue dropped and everybody went nuts. Um, yeah. And that showed that, do we need a watch fair? No, they just did a release. It cost them zero dollars, basically. Mm-hmm. And they were able to do this release massively, right? Yeah. So um, now we need to think about, okay, well, what's happening with these watch fairs? It's no longer to sell things to their ADs, right? It's now to bring people together in mm-hmm. the watch world. As you said, for these smaller brands to kind of see. If we're looking at our, our, our Philippe Dufours, FP Jorns, and these guys, they're once again not flying people in to visit them directly. They want to come to these places to kind of interact with everyone else and everybody sees what they're working on. Mm-hmm. So, um, and this kind of goes into what Watches and Wonders is, right? So we had previously two watch fairs, SIHH, which was kind of the, I believe, uh, AP um, and all of the uh, Richemont brands. Yeah, we have to mention these two watch fairs would happen in different cities. At different one times. Was, one was in January, one was in March. One was in Geneva. And one, one was, was in, in Geneva, one was in, uh, in Basel. Basel. And then all these reporters had to come twice. Twice in a very short time, a couple yeah. of weeks later, travel to Switzerland from all over the world twice. It, so it was not very efficient. So um, SIHH was not around for very very long. It was uh, uh, basically changed into Watches and Wonders, and then Basel, all the Basel brands were absorbed into Watches and Wonders as well. 
So that's what we have today, right? That's what is physically is going on today, this very day that we're here sitting and recording this. We're, we're during the uh, Watches and Wonders week. So uh, we still have this, but now we have to think about what is the purpose of this? Um, mm. What are we gaining out of having this? What do you think? Yeah, so me personally, I've never attended any watch fair in Switzerland. Um, I did attend the Dubai Watch Week, which is... Absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Absolutely. My, my, my no, props to the Siddiqui family for being able to put on such a wonderful show. And they are now on that level of these watch fairs. In, I, I've in been to both. To, to, to press coverage and to talk, right? I mean, the hype and the... the you're able to talk. No, no, I mean, when they, they talk about this fair itself. Yes, not, not, yes. not just the fair itself. We come to that in a second. But um, the the way of how this fair was made, or this watch show, the Dubai Watch Week, was made to actually just interact. There's no pressure of selling. There's no... There's nobody... There Anyone can go for needs. free. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that is there, massive. There's, no, there's nobody who actually tries to sell you anything. You can't buy anything as a consumer. There's no B2B business going on because it's all basically a, a, a showcase. Of yeah, watches. yeah. There are these amazing workshops. There are these master classes that you can book. All of this, as you said, for free. You just have to be quick, limited spaces. Right? Yeah. But other than that, you can attend these forum discussions with, yeah, what what can I say? I have, I have taken photos like a little fanboy with Everybody I knew from either YouTube, from, you know, yeah, yeah. you meet Waco and Tim Mosso and uh, Mark andre from... Yeah, from, from uh, Watches TV. TV. And and all of these people, the Zach Blass and, um, um, and and the guys from Jack Time Forrester. and Tide. Jack Forrester. I, I have to say this. Uh, so once again, I went to Dubai Watch Week first before I went to Basel. Oh, okay. Uh, this was 2017. And not only was at the time in 2017, not only was the, um, yeah. the, the fair free... But the food was also free. Ah. It was catered by the Ritz-Carlton, which was next door. Mm -hmm. So it was unbelievable food, unbelievable, yeah. you know, drinks, coffee, everything you want. And all of this while sitting next to, you know, Mr. Jorn himself. Yes. Um, it was unbelievable. Or Mr. Dufour, not yes. Philip Dufour, but Mr. Dufour, CEO of Rolex. And yes, yes, I, exactly, exactly. And Philip Dufour. <laughs> and and as Philip well. Dufour himself. But uh, this, this was what was funny is, is I did these, the master classes. I've done the, the, um, the, the panel talks were amazing. And then I went to Basel expecting a similar treatment, expecting a similar experience. Mm -hmm. And it was the most disappointing, the biggest letdown um, I had. I mean, you couldn't go into the watches booths. As as a non-watch industry, because uh, you had to have, have an appointment. Yeah. The only people that got appointments were from you know, journalists or press or press business partners. Yeah. So, me and my friend Jesus, uh, we went and we could not go to anything. The only booth, the only people that let us go in, and this is probably one of the reasons why I like this brand so much, was Oris. Oh, Oris was the only one people. willing to talk to us. Who ever says anything bad about Oris? You didn't never hear anybody. Talk they need bad to be, about you know, dragged and quartered. <laughs> <laughs> but Oris is just fantastic. Um, so they were the only ones willing to interact with us, and I thought that was fantastic on their behalf. Um, everything else, you know, you see through glass. And this is the funny thing: we went there and we expected to spend a full day there. And I think around like lunchtime, we said, 
let's get out of here. <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was just a waste. It wasn't a waste of time. It was a good experience, but it was still not what I expected. I think if you're not, not going there, maybe on the public days when there's actually the public is supposed to be there. And if you don't have a press, we should say this, uh, let me, let me preface this at the time. This was 2019 when okay. we went, there were no public days. All oh, right. So, so this was the first year yeah. that they said, everyone's welcome any day before that they had private days and public days. Mm. So I think the first two or three days were private. And then afterwards, the last two or three days, the public can go as well. In 2019, they said, whenever, whoever. And that was one of the issues that we ran into was we physically were competing with the likes of Hodinkee and Revolution uh, to try and, um, you know, just see some watches and nobody's going to pick us. Yeah, so I think this is this is where I have the complete difference to to Dubai Watch Week, where this is the end consumer or the and there's no talks. And enthusiast is just, there's no workshops. Ah, you mean in, there's no talks in Basel, in, right? There's nothing you can see the watches. That's it. They're starting this year. And watches and wonders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have They're, forum discussions. They have talks. They have which I was so that. disappointed. I thought they would I have think, something like I think this. And Dubai Watch Week just rattled their cage so much. Yeah. And people were from from the industry as well were talking about it and saying like, "Well, we love to go to Dubai Watch Week because we can just interact with our customers with with other watch brands." We so you've how many pressure. Watch Weeks have you been to? Two. Two. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so I've obviously been to there's three, 2019 I think. and 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, 2019, it was uh, mostly by myself because I, I just uh, took off from work and I said I will spend exactly. every day here. I signed up for every forum, every yeah, <laughs> yeah, discussion, yeah. everything that I could get get in. And I had a blast. I mean, it was just amazing. So my, took- my, my takeaway, by the way, every Dubai Watch Week, Cipriani or Cipriani, however you say it, right? Yeah. Sitting there. And that's this is the little open-air restaurant that they have. Pre-fee menu, 250 dirhams. Yeah. And wonderful food. And you're literally rubbing shoulders with watch royalty. And and also, I mean, the the, the way of interaction, you just bump into people, talk to everybody. I mean, I, I, I remember this lovely Emirati guy I, I, I met. And uh, I, was, I was telling him, like, wow, I really like your cufflinks. So he was wearing a um, Pepsi cufflink mm-hmm. on one side, and um, on the other side was a Starbucks logo. And I thought that's really cool. Then I realized that he was wearing a Rolex Pepsi and a Rolex Starbucks. He was double wristing, and his cufflinks were matched. I thought it was so brilliant. I thought, like, oh my god, what a cool idea! <laughs> so collectors on different levels, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Absolutely amazing stuff. Or people who are and I, I've met people that I'm still to this day King Seikos or Kratos or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And it's just amazing of how how across um, all countries and nationalities and everything, every background, you find people having common ground. And Correct. If it's a Casio you're wearing, or if it's the uh, simplicity from Dufour, it doesn't matter, right? Yeah, exactly. And you can just walk up to people. Like in 2019, <clears throat> I went to the H. Moser stand and I thought, I think I know that guy, right? It was just when they just opened, 10 o'clock or something in the morning. And I was like, oh. So I talked about Moser watches and uh, with the CEO of Moser, Eduard Melan. And know? did you we know it was him? Yeah, well, after <laughs> two, three minutes, I thought like, Man, I really, Where do I, I know really you from? I know you, man. Are, are you Edward Milan? I said, like, yeah, yeah. And, okay, great. And this so is, I did the same thing with the, the guys from uh, HYT. Um, yes. You know, the, the, the liquid powered or whatever, liquid display watches. Yeah. Um, and 
chatted with, I don't know, maybe they took 45 minutes to explain to me yeah. how the watch actually works, how the bellows work. The, the only challenge was um, with, with Konstantin Chaikin because he had this, this, uh, he, did, he doesn't speak English, right? Uh, so he had this uh, translator there. That was a bit um, strange. Harder to do, but mm-hmm. it was still still lovely. No, it's, it's, it's also absolutely a lovely guy. fantastic and uh, fantastic to talk to all of these people and just walk up to people and just say hi. Right? Yeah, say hi. and the, the, my my takeaway, one of my biggest besides besides of course the 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 mm. pre fee menu at uh, Cipriani, uh, because that's <laughs> that's the thing that I go back for every single time, um, is I remember meeting uh, uh, R J from Fratello. Yes, and I saw him from across the room, and uh, he, he walks next to me, and uh, he's wearing his uh, solid gold Speedmaster, the new one. Mm-hmm. And this was—I've never seen one in the flesh, in the metal. And I was like, uh, you know, I asked him, "Is this a? Oh, you're wearing the solid gold Speedmaster." He takes it off, hands it to me, and he says, why? You like it? <laughs> I got to play with his watch, and it was nice. It was super cool. And uh, he asked me, you know, what are you wearing? And at the time, I was wearing a Datejust. And I was like, ah, it's just a you know, Datejust. He goes, but a Datejust is such a cool watch, too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, just the way he, you interact with these people that you see on YouTube, you see them on TV, it was really cool. Because yeah. ultimately, we are not insiders. We are not watch insiders. We are outsiders, if anything, right? So you and I were... Not in the industry. No. So uh, it's cool to kind of from a fan perspective to I be totally. able to interact with these people. And it's, it's kind of. Absolutely. You see, you see these, these big idols. Right? Yes. And I mean, then I, I've, in one of the uh, forum discussions, I was sitting, there's the three, three seats next to Philippe Dufour. He was just watching the same forum I was watching. And I thought like, this, this, uh, I can't, I just, I just have to do it. Right. So I walked up to him afterwards and said like, Mr. Dufour, I'm sorry, but would you Take a selfie with me. <laughs> and here, a middle-aged man taking selfies with... Other middle-aged men. <laughs> a bit older. <laughs> and I thought, like, this is so weird, right? Yeah. But it was fun. And, uh, yeah, it was... And he was like, absolutely, yeah, sure, let's do it. Man. Yeah, it's super uh, cool. It's uh, super cool. So nice. And Jean-Claude Beaver at the... the oh, I don't know if it was the last one or the one before that. He gave that wonderful talk. Um, and I'm just... Such a force of nature. He, right? he handed out books afterwards, and he was uh, autographing them. Mm. So I have a signed copy of his book. Um and so we must have seen each other because, of course, I, exactly, I was there, exactly. but uh, we didn't know each other yet. No. Yeah, so go. this is very, you know, once again, small world. <laughs> yeah. um, so it's very cool. So anyway, so that's how, how watch fairs now become more like a interactive place. Exactly. It, and, and then the, I think when one thing that, that the pandemic taught us is like when, when Dubai Watch Week 2021 happened, oh, my God, this pent up demand of just meeting people again, right? And just talking yep. Face to face. I, I remember going there, and I, I didn't know quite exactly what oh, to do. Like so nice. everybody, you know, half the people were wearing masks, the other half weren't wearing. You know, and it, this was the at, in, in Dubai at least. Yeah, yeah. You know, in America, they hadn't been wearing masks for two years by that point. <laughs> they never even started. Uh, but here, you know, in Dubai, we we had you know the kind of the Singapore rules. We were wearing masks quite late yeah. um, in the game. So when all these people came, it was kind of you know what what did we do? It was a first event. You know that kind of to me signified okay, COVID is really starting to move behind us and it was it was such a nice freedom yeah, it was lovely no and then of course um in in general uh, again siddiqui family organizing this paying for all of this yeah i mean just the amount of said, money there's, they must there's, there's no charges right i don't know if, if if brands who want to attend probably have to i think they might pay for their booths exactly but it's it's probably yeah i don't want to speculate but it's probably minimal and um it's just about 
being there. And, and it is. Last time we had AP having a big stand there. We had Chopin having a big stand. Rolex, because Siddiqui, of course, Rolex, always has the big stand. And, and the, the watches they had. I mean, they had yeah, some real did, yeah. curiosities uh, at Rolex. Oh, yes. Um, they usually do some kind of theme. And I think one year was the Submariner line. And they had Submariners, I don't know, dating back to uh, you know, 1953. Yeah. Um, so it was super cool to get to see these in the middle. Which is, the, I think, the one downside that we have to mention is that that as a as a big watch distributor in the region you might not have some of your competitors attend that fair that's an interesting so thing i thought about the same thing i thought to myself is this going to be the case is Siddiqui going to prefer or put preferential treatment for their brands but then you see a lot of the brands they're not selling no, for instance you walk in and they had a grand seiko booth grand seiko is all futain yeah, yeah, yeah they're not Siddiqui at all. Siddiqui. And they're willing to display and show. And yeah, maybe there's some subconscious preferential treatment towards the Siddiqui brands, but in general, they're happy to have anyone. Yeah. And I thought that was super cool. Absolutely. I think they're open to uh, absolutely yeah. for that. But the question is, are the competitors open for that? Yes, that's a, that's a very good <laughs> point. Is, is Have we seen Omega come through? Yeah, we haven't. But no. maybe this year, who knows? That would be we nice. We don't know yet. Who's, who's but yeah, so, so I think Siddiqui would be happy to have them. I just think uh, maybe the, the, the Swatch group wouldn't be so happy to be hosted by a Rolex, you know, one of the original, uh, one of the, the premier Rolex mm. ADs, but let's see how it how it goes. I think it's it's still even even without it's still um, a fantastic fantastic show to attend. So they made such an impact that the biggest show, Watches and Wonders, in Switzerland, is taking cues from them. Right? Exactly. So now they're they're imitating this. They're having these these forums. They're having char- chats. They're having activities. They're having things that is that's interactive. Know, Once again, interactive. interactive is the word. Well. Will they be as good? I mean, we don't know yet. Watches and Wonders happens right now, but um, we are not there. So we, we, we don't know exactly what it is. Because we will see what the reports are from people actually going there. Uh, will it be as good as to watch week? Probably not, because it's still new for them. Well, not just that. It's going to be the sheer size. Yeah. And One of the things about Dubai Watch Week is the intimacy. True. And it's it's uh, the location. It's it's just uh, oh the location the, in DIFC. The uh, it's 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 unbelievable. It's <laughs> yeah. it's so great. Yeah, it's just a fantastic place to go. Yeah. And, and and it was fantastic time, right? I mean, it's it's not too ex- the city is not too expensive at the time. Hotel rooms, everything is. It's not it's not peak. Well, even if it was peak, there's so many hotels in Dubai that you could always yeah. find one at a cheap price. It's not in Basel. One of the issues where the, you're renting somebody's you know half of their flat yeah. for. You know, thousands of euros a night. Because and that's, that's because a huge that's, show for, yeah, for relatively For small a small city. town. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah. Anyhow, so what, what we, I think we will, we'll see with Watches and Wonders is evolving into more, um, more of... Less that. B2B, more interaction, and... And cater to, this, you know, the... The end consumer. And, uh, and less of these once a year forming. releases, right? So this is one of the big things you mentioned earlier, is that these brands have to pump out all these releases once a year. But watches are not on a single year, rele- uh, year release pattern. Yeah. It takes more than one year to develop a new watch. And, and we saw this, right, from Rolex saying um, in a couple of... They, they released just the Deep Sea Challenge, right? Mm-hmm. Just out of nowhere. Midday. Or midday. Mid, mid-year. Mid-year. So we're going to start Judah, seeing more online Judah releases. Judah also uses, usually uses one. Lagos 39. Now and one in the um, September time. Exactly. Around there, right? Not a fixed, necessary fixed date, but... Just when they're ready. And I think you, if you attend Watches and Wonders, I think there are certain 
requirements. You have to launch something, right? I'm assuming. I, I think that's, I've read this somewhere that there is a bit of a, you can't just attend and say, well, I have nothing to show. I show everything before and after. Fun Let's story about this, by the way, is, is Jean-Claude Beaver. Um, he, as, as if you know, he bought uh, Blanc Pond back in 1980 around 1985, 1988, somewhere around there. Um, he bought Blanc Pond the name for 20,000 Swiss francs. Yes. Um, and he had... At the time, it was owned by uh, Piguet, F. Piguet. The and they had, but they had no watches. No, they were producing movements still, yeah. So they had nothing, basically nothing to go on. They went to the first Basel yeah. under the name Blanc Pond and they dis, no, displayed nothing. They displayed just the, uh, it was a, a big uh, logo. It said, uh, Blanc Ponce never making a quartz watch since 19, or 1793 or whatever the year was. Yeah, right? I think that's and that was it. I remember that. And that. everyone got pissed off because how how, the, how dare these guys? They come in here, they don't show anything. Um, and the funny thing was, all the attention was on Blanc Pond. Yeah. Because they didn't show anything. And then, you know, of course, Blanc Basil Pond gets never, mad. Never, never produced a quartz watch. And never will. And never will, like exactly. Yeah. So and then, uh, of course, Basil comes in and says, oh, you cannot do this again. You must show a watch next time. So they're like, okay, okay, okay. Next year comes along, Jean-Claude Beaver says, we have no watches. What are we going to do? He tells his, one of his co- you know, uh, co-workers, take a hammer, smash up all of the displays. So the guy, oh, okay, okay. Smashes up all the displays. As the world opens... No watches. Oh, they stole all of our watches. <laughs> we had a whole display of watches and they're all gone. They were all stolen. And once again, talk of the Basel Watch Fair was Blanc Pond. Mm-hmm. So this is this kind of viral marketing back in the 1980s that uh, you know, <laughs> JCB started. So yeah, super he, cool. he's, he's open to any, any kind yeah. of, of new ways of marketing. It's amazing, yeah. Yeah, he but, definitely, definitely single-handedly disrupted so many watch brands in a in a very positive way, you know, right? uh, and gave them some big boost in popularity. And yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, but anyway, so that, coming back to the to the fairs, um, so obviously we 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 already talked a bit about the releases from from Rolex and Tudor um, earlier in earlier episodes. There's so much to come. A lot happens during the the shows, but we have to also show uh, talk about what happens around the shows, especially in Basel. We have a lot of watch brands actually not attending the show, yep. but renting out ballrooms or yes, or yes, this is hotels, a big big deal right now, and um, then inviting there. So this is around watches and wonders, not yeah, Basel. And, um, uh, sorry, so yeah, so in Geneva, who one then, of sorry, the, the, who then because of the accumulation of all this journalists and all of the audience. Yeah, there. yeah. So right. they have parties, they have events, mm-hmm. they have, you know, they host people within their uh, boutiques, for instance, right. within, uh, you know, random ballrooms, hotel rooms, whatever. And they use that as their forum because the journalists are still there. They're mm-hmm. going to come and they're going to interview or talk to them. And it's, it's basically free publicity. Yes. Um, and we also have to talk about the fact that, um, uh, what happened last year when uh, Watches and Wonders, or it was, it was Watches and Wonders last year, right? What happened at the beginning of Watches and Wonders last year? The, who, yeah. who took all the attention away from Watches and Wonders? Somebody released, wasn't it Omega? Omega X. 
<laughs> uh, Omega X swatch, uh-huh. right? With mm. the moon swatch. Yes. And it just goes to show you that was an online, kind of an online release, an online debut uh, with an in-store purchasing, right? Omega was not a part of Watches and Wonders, but everyone was buzzing about the moon so, swatch. So is it really worth it to pay so much money to go to Watches and Wonders for a brand and to you know, ultimately be disrupted by Swatch, who paid nothing? <laughs> and who would have thought that Swatch would be able to disrupt anything anymore, right? Because yeah. it was a, basically a brand in a bit of a decline, right? Yeah, so yeah. slowly, slowly, they just lost market share and attention. You know, from so everybody. it's unbelievable this and happened. How did they come back with this? I think nobody expected. No, nobody expected. expected. And this is why everybody last year was talking about this. Yeah. I thought something similar would happen this year, and then sadly, nothing has happened from Omega or Swatch or any Swatch brand groups at the moment. Um, so they're yeah, still maybe, quiet. Maybe they said, "Okay, look, we we'll should, give we you some time." Yeah. yeah. No, but this was this was a slap in the face to, to Watches and Wonders. Yeah. But yeah, that's true. Yeah, right. I mean, that these are the, the big big shares. But but I think we should just throw this in. There's a lot of other sh- other fairs coming up. I mean, look, Dubai does in every two weeks the Dubai Watch Week. Every two years. Uh, sorry. If it was every, every two, two weeks, weeks, we'd go a lot. <laughs> sorry, yeah, every two years. But uh, in the in the off years, they do the Orology Forum. Yes. And that can happen in different cities around the world. So it was in New York in uh, this and year, in 2022? It was in, in London, I think, yep. right? Yeah. It's, so that's really great. Not only to export, um, you know, the, just. It exports the watches, style, also, the, the way called, that it's handled. You know, Dubai. Watch Orology Week. Forum. Yeah, Dubai, Horology. Dubai Watch Week, Orology Forum. Correct. That so it amazing. shows the world how we do things yeah. in, in, in the Middle East, and that's super cool. Makes us really, really proud. We All right. Like uh, uh, now, sorry. before we wrap one up. One more thing. There's other smaller fairs now. You know, the wind-up watch fair. These little things. Yes, yes. Focused on independence and small mm-hmm. micro brands and Correct. stuff. I think we just should mention that as well. As yeah, yeah. So, so it, I think we're going to see a lot more of these um, smaller independent mm. fairs coming around because, yeah. once again, it's easier for these independents to showcase their watches if they have a if they share yeah, the costs, exactly, so to speak. Exactly. Um, so I think that's it's. And it's so great to attend. I mean, the, the attendance is, is, is growing every year from, from people yeah. who actually go and come and go and watch, uh, go to these fairs. Yeah. All right, Ralph, yeah. we're running over time. I, I think this is going to be our, our normal uh, thing. We're just going to run over time every time. But uh, we, we never mentioned what we were wearing on our wrists. Right. So why don't you go ahead? Okay. Thanks for asking. <laughs> <laughs> I am wearing my Tudor GMT, uh, the two-tone version. Yeah, I have that for for a while now. I like this um, gold capped um, oyster bracelet, it's really nice. Uh, yeah, what capping is the not not the same as plating, right? No, exactly. which is cool, but it's also not the same as solid. So exactly. Yeah. So you get the and price to discuss this at time. cap versus yeah. plated. We'll do another episode of that. Yeah, exactly. it has a couple <clears throat> of millimeters strong. Um, yeah, gold in it. Yeah, yeah, it's nice. Exactly, and I am I like wearing it. my Grand Seiko S. BGM two two one. So that is the high beat. No, this is not the high beat. This is the original. Um, so we can I can spend thirteen okay. hours talking about this, but I'm not going to. Um, this is the regular beat GMT. Uh-huh. Um, basically, this is one of the original GMT models that Grand Seiko released um, in 2001. So in 2001, they came out with two GMT models. At the time, it was called the O2 one. So I can also spend time talking about the, the nomenclature of Grand Seiko numbers. 
So yeah, that would be interesting. Uh, that, that we that. can you know, <laughs> talk about for a while as well. But this was one of the original ones. And uh, basically the, the lead designer of Grand Seiko, when asked out of all of his designs, what watch would he wear? This is the one he chose, the 221. Okay. So that to me just says, you know, the simplicity, the cream dial. Mm -hmm. It is a very, very simple watch. When I was buying it, I was thinking I should go for the high beat. But the there's some kind of warmth, charm in this dial. It's so simple yet not. And because all of the other, you know, fancy, quote unquote, fancy dials with the, mm -hmm. you know, the, the texture and everything. It's just a, it takes away from the original simplicity of the watch. So, yeah. We will have an episode about Grand nice. Seiko. And this is not the original strap, right? No, no, no. I have it on a Hodinkee suede strap at the moment. Uh -huh. um, generally speaking, uh, suede is a... I, I love suede as a watch strap yeah, the, material. The, the two loom plotters also could have basically have a different name. It could have been the, 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 the strap changes, right? Yes, we could have. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of... We, we both seem to just really like to change, change straps, things up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and individualize our watches. Exactly. Oh. So we'll, we'll spend another uh, episode about that as well. So lots more to come, guys. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for... If you stayed with us this entire time... Um, thank you. And uh, we will have some more Watches and Wonders talk maybe in about a week's time. Awesome. Thank you, Martin. Bye-bye, right. everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye -bye. Thank you.